Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you all very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And as ever, we have got a huge amount to cram in in our time together. Obviously, I'll be reflecting on the bleak, unbearable news of the death of David Amos, but I'll be reflecting fairly briefly because I know you will all agree with me as I put a pro-politics case, a case in favour of elected representatives, which has to be made occasionally. Um, and um, yeah, there's that. I will also be looking at the um, new Labour series on the television. I've had a lot of emails about it, so I thought, yeah, let's talk about that, um, the new Labour series, Blair Brown and the New Labour Revolution, I think it's called, or something close to that. And then a range of fantastic questions. Actually, there are some questions on that series. There is some uh, great stuff on Brexit and Frosty and Starmer. So that's all to come from you, from incidentally, uh, you know, Saigon, Belgium, and of course, the UK. You know, we are global, but the UK plays a big part. So that's all to come. Now, talking about the UK, um, I've got a report back on the live show at King's Place and the live stream. Uh, the prediction that I asked the audience at King's Place was this, and on the stream, how many of you predict predict, not what you want to happen, but what you predict will happen. How many of you predict that the Conservatives will still be ahead in the polls by Christmas? Now, hopefully, all of you listening will have either been on the live stream or at King's Place. So this is pretty surplus information for you, but I will reveal that the both the audience in King's Place and the live global stream predicted that the Conservatives would still be ahead in the polls at Christmas. Now, there was some kind of qualifications to that prediction. Um, one contributor at King's Place said that she thought Johnson was so obsessed with Christmas they'd get through that period. But January could be more difficult and they might fall behind then. Well, maybe I should have said over the winter to address that qualification. But it's quite something when you think about it that, um, you know, the majority of streamed live audience and at the King's Place live show predicted the Conservatives would still be ahead. When you think about it, petrol shortages, gas prices soaring, the Northern Ireland Protocol causing mayhem, and it go on and on and on. And yet that is the prediction. I'll say no more than that because we discussed it for most of the evening or a lot of the evening on uh, Monday night at King's Place. Uh, no doubt we'll come back to it um, if they are still ahead in the coming months. So many dramas to reflect on in our time together. Now, the next live show isn't in London, isn't in sort of Brighton or the great rope tackle in Shoreham. It's at the great Witham Art Centre in Barnard Castle in County Durham. Now, getting, I get so many emails from you and tweets saying, can you take the rock and roll politics show out of London? You know, forget about Edinburgh and Brighton. You know, what about this place? I've got an email coming up 
asking me to take the show somewhere. So please come if you are in County Durham, the northeast. I know people who are going to be staying overnight in Barna Castle. It should be great. But I do know them um, to see that show. Um, but So do come along if you can. Uh, the tickets are available on the Barna Castle website. It's Saturday, November, Barnard Castle website, the Witham Art Centre with, uh, website. Uh, it's on Saturday, November the 6th. It will be a brand new show and we will make sense of whatever the political dramas erupting around us are then. And uh, yeah, make a weekend of it. And we'll have a drink afterwards in the bar if you can make it. Uh, we will have some fun, but more than that, we will delve deep. So that's November the 6th at the great legendary Witham Arts Centre, right next to Specsavers, where, remember, Dominic Cummings had to go to check his eyesight. Um, at Barnard Castle, Saturday, November the 6th. I'll send the link on the blurb to this podcast, and I really hope to see as many of you as can make it. Okay, so that's the kind of blurb at the beginning. The nightmare of last Friday uh, is unbearable for all of us, and uh, you, you become platitudinous in sort of expressing it, really. It's always worth reiterating, not just at times of dark tragedy, but constantly, that politics is a noble vocation. Us lot together during this podcast and in live shows might be ferociously critical of various politicians, and rightly so. But politics is a noble vocation. And most elected representatives come into politics to do good, in inverted commas. Now, the essence of politics is that we all disagree about what form that good should take, or even if we agree with the end... We disagree about the means to bring it about. That's the essence of politics. But the alternative to democratic politics is war. That really is it. That's why politics is such a noble vocation, that differences are resolved by words, uh, by advocacy, by taking a position and prevailing, not by military might. And therefore, those who we elect, and it's us lot who elect them, those we elect to the House of Commons, we should um, recognise that on the whole, most of them are there to represent us. We will all kind of do political battle about what they stand for and what they uh, are trying to do. But it must be in the context that they're there because they believe they can make a positive contribution. And it is constantly worth reiterating, not just in the context of the terrible, unbearable murder of David Amos, who, who everyone said it. I mean, I knew him a bit. He was a lovely guy. In fact, I was with Jess Phillips at the Cheltenham Book Festival on Friday when the news uh, was announced about this appalling event and she said something very perceptive about David Amos that it was almost as if he had walked onto the wrong set. 
he was not a political schema. Um, he was not really politically controversial or contentious. He was utterly committed to his local area. And she reminded me that his most profound campaign was to make Southend a city. This is not the stuff of, you know, international controversy. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we, there will be, a, as we discussed at, at Cheltenham, Jess Phillips and I, there will be that dark, familiar cycle that happened after the nightmare of Joe Cox, you know, MP security, but they will in the end conclude that the dialogue with their constituents matters more. And we must all kind of learn to respect that. That does not mean politics should lapse into a sort of bland, consensual centrism. As you know, I don't think centrism exists. But it does mean a recognition that politics is a noble vocation. Anyway, I'm only saying that because David merits that at the very least, but I know you all agree with me. So let's move on and reflect on something which I suspect you will have all seen, which is the new Labour series on the BBC. And... Um, it's been widely kind of got rave reviews, uh, partly to my surprise, um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, for anyone who's followed that period, it wasn't particularly revealing. Um, what was virtuous on one level was also its drawback on another. It did give the voices space to speak. Incidentally, a space they never had when they were in government. Uh, in government, they were mediated by the media, and it was a massive distortion. So, for example, uh, when Labour were in power from 1997 onwards, much of the media, especially the BBC, were obsessed by spin, that everything was a distortion. Uh, carried out by a devilish Alistair Campbell in consultation with Tony Blair or a devilish uh, Charlie Whelan in consultation with Gordon Brown. And, you know, Panorama did a documentary, a whole programme on spin and Labour, new Labour, before 1997. And then they did another one after 1997. Then you had the sort of Blair lied to go to war thesis and all the rest of it. It was all about presentation. The joy of this series was none of that featured. There was no sort of big section on spin, uh, this nonsensical red herring uh, about New Labour. But at the time, uh, I don't know if you all lived through it, I, you know, the media was obsessed by it. In a, in a torn way. I remember at the BBC, you'd sit round in the BBC office at Westminster, they'd all say, it's all spin, and then the next minute, phone up Alistair Campbell to get a briefing. Anyway, none of that appeared, which was a good thing. But in giving the voices themselves the room to breathe in a limited way, the series cried out for some analysis rather than just letting it kind of breathe without comment. 
Um, and the way they let the voices breathe was in itself a contrivance, really. Uh, my kind of suspicions were roused when I saw that uh, my good and esteemed colleague, John Rental was one of the advisors, because John, as most of you will know, is obsessed by Tony Blair. And to this very day, remember Tony Blair left office in 2007, writes virtually every column in terms of whether someone is close to Tony Blair uh, as a politician. Is Keir Starmer Blairite is one of his themes. And if not, Starmer's doomed. If he is, that's great. David it led him into all kinds of traps. He became a great admirer of Cameron because he concluded he was like Blair. Um, anyway, as a result, one of the problems with the series, I think, is this, that the cliché that Tony Blair was daring and radical and impatient in his radicalism was reinforced. So, and it was reinforced in this way, that he said several times, and Peter Mandelson said several times, uh, that he was the new bit of new Labour, and Brown was the Labour bit, but not really new. Now, anyone watching would want to be on the side of the new. Who wants to be old? And yet, what does that mean? And it was quite interesting when the, all the contributors were asked what, how to describe Tony Blair's politics. There was a hesitancy. And when Tony Blair was asked, he described himself as progressive. What does that mean? And new is very interesting. And Tony says at one point, Look, I think I was the new. You know, Gordon wasn't as new as I was. And everyone nodding, yeah, 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 come on, you're the new, uh, who wants to be old? But what it really meant, actually, was the opposite of what I know John Rental and others think. That it was timid and cautious. That was the newness. Um, so new meant, to take the most, you know, well-known example, never breaking with America. Uh, which led to Tony Blair's support for Iraq, new. Labour in the 80s were seen as hostile to the United States, so new, you would be for it. New meant reforming public services on the basis of Ken Clark and Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. Uh, not, there were all kinds of ways you could have reformed public services. There was an urgent need for reform. But new meant that, the sort of atomization of public services. Was that bold and radical or was that safe and cautious because it would get the support of many conservatives and the Rupert Murdoch newspapers, as with Iraq? And so I think that kind of juxtaposition of the seemingly bold and radical Tony Blair with the cautious Gordon Brown, both actually were cautious. Gordon Brown was cautious in many ways, but in some respects, he was more daring uh, than Tony Blair in challenging, in a very cautious way, but nonetheless challenging the idea that markets always work in public services and in the delivery of public services, in finding a way to fund the NHS. Tony tends to be a bit dismissive about spending, you know, that's what Labour always does, you know. 
but actually it was he who said, only after a long Daily Mail campaign about the underfunding of the NHS, that the NHS must uh, be invested at a scale of the European average. But he didn't say how. That was left to Brown. And Brown found the how, and it turned out to be very, very popular. Um, but it was quite daring, a tax rise, which I know some around Tony Blair thought would lose them the next election. It was actually very popular. So these terms that are used casually, you know, I'm new, all right? And that's brave, bold, and radical, um, actually deserve much more analysis. There is also a danger with the series that I could sort of almost see or hear columnists watching and BBC political staff and some programme editors saying, this is the way forward. Starmer needs to take notes on this and apply those notes to the current situation. Whereas every situation is historical in politics. There is not an exact replication. So Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, as I mentioned a moment ago in relation to Iraq, they were products of the 1980s and to some extent the 1970s. In the 1980s, Labour lost elections with a kind of almost a determination. And that's what formed their thinking. And also in the 1980s, Labour had lost the ideological battle. Although, as I've said in this podcast, Kinnock and Hattersley in the 80s put up one hell of a fight on the ideological front, but they, all, no one was listening. Um, the ideology of the 80s was Thatcherite, small state, tax cuts, public spending was always a waste, and so on. And that defined new Labour. And there are limited lessons for Keir Starmer and the current leadership in all of that. Uh, this is an era where the state is playing a central role, where the language is very statist, taking back control, re-engaging with the left behind, levelling up, all implies an agency of the state. And Johnson is on one level, though only one level, a kind of public spender, an interventionist, as was Theresa May, influenced by Nick Timothy. Rishi Sunak isn't, but that is an opportunity for Labour, not a problem. Um, he, Sunak, is a kind of Thatcherite, makes Osborne, George Osborne, seem like a Marxist. And that too is a sort of opportunity for Labour, but a very different opportunity from those uh, that greeted Blair and Brown in the mid-1990s. So there are really limited lessons. Labour now, in many ways, of course, have bigger challenges. They've lost Scotland and the north of England. But ideologically, it's much more benevolent for a clever Labour leadership than the 80s. There is one lesson from the series, and only one. And that is the degree of focus and discipline and coherence in that early New Labour project, certainly up to the 97 election. It was never about spin. 
although wooing the media is absolutely fundamental to Labour and ever winning. I, I think Alistair Campbell was absolutely central to Labour's electoral successes because the media is central to any party's success. Um, but it wasn't a kind of, oh, let's woo the mail today strategy, as shallow as that. Everything was connected. They tried to link values to policy to presentation. The messaging was utterly disciplined. And Blair and Brown and a few others had a sense of the political rhythm. So they knew what to say at any given moment as the politics of the times raged ahead. And that is gold dust. And it is not a luxury, but a precondition to victory. That almost symphonic quality of messaging, values, policies, a sense of owning the future, coming together. And it doesn't happen by chance. And that Labour needs to apply at any election. The bar is much higher for Labour at elections than Conservatives. Uh, very mediocre leaders under the Conservative Party have won elections. Uh, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, none of them would have won as Labour leaders, you know, with those qualities and flaws. So the bar is much higher. But there's no point going on about it. They have to leap over it. And that lot did in 97. So, yeah, it was it's a series that I thought was much more flawed than most. Danny Finkelstein wrote an interesting piece in The Times about it. And he pointed out, uh, generously actually, because it's not where he is, uh, that there was no one on the left in the series. Again, a series working on the assumption that the political spectrum in Britain uh, spans kind of, I don't know, David Cameron and Boris Johnson and goes to the left up to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. But of course it goes well beyond that and it's as if it doesn't. But if you have advisors like John Rental, you would work on that assumption. So flawed, but where, and by the way, this is partly to do with television. You can't do much analysis on television. What you can do and what they did well is just let people speak and look at their faces. And these older figures compared with the youthful optimism of the late 1990s. And they cleverly let the camera rest on their faces once they had answered a question. All of that worked brilliantly. But in terms of understanding the period and the nuancing and the complexities, and in terms, I'm, I fear, of reinforcing shallow stereotypes about who was bold and who was tame, I think the series probably didn't do many favours to an understanding of the past. But anyway, some of you have written in about that series, amongst many other brilliant questions. So, shall we turn to them, if it's okay with all of you? This is a really good question about Iraq, based partly on the series from Evangeline Bell, um, who has been watching the series. There's a long episode about Iraq, nothing remotely revelatory in it, actually. Um, anyway, Evangeline Bell writes, 
the very existence of the Iraq war was not a decision made by the British Prime Minister. That was a decision made by the US President. The decision for Blair was whether he saw the UK's main ally as the US or the EU. Yeah, I'll just interrupt you, Evangeline. I've said this on this podcast and elsewhere. A lot of people treat Blair as a solo player in the build-up to the war in Iraq. He wasn't. The call he had to make was not, oh, do I think we should invade Iraq? It was, should we, the British government, back America? Different question altogether. Anyway, back to Evangeline's uh, email. Now, where were we on it? Oh, yeah. Basically, he, Blair, had got himself into a position where a failure to support Bush would have been seen as such a stab in the back that it would have destroyed whatever existed of a special relationship and the US would never have forgiven either Blair or the British, another good point. If, however, Blair had seen Britain's future as European, then he would have sided with the French. It was President Chirac who put pay to any idea of multilateralism after all. My point is that it was a moment in time which encapsulates the post-war British dilemma. Are we part of an Anglo-American world or are we European? At every point of decision, British Prime Ministers have prioritised the US relationship over the European. And the end of that is Brexit. I disagree with every word of that. Agree. Um, And... uh, yeah, Iraq was not an aberration. You know, lots of people say, God, you know, Tony Blair, the third way, and then suddenly became evangelical. He didn't become evangelical. He was really pragmatic. He just said, right, if I break with America over this, I will lose Middle England, I will lose Murdoch's newspapers and so on. And maybe if I stay with America, I can influence America over this. Um, it was all about the relationship with America not what was happening in Iraq or the wider uh, Middle East. Um, and actually, he did do a kind of third way. He got America to go to the UN and they were going to act unilaterally and stuff. But you're so right about you know what it tells us about our political situation. Now, uh, next one. Thank you for that. A great email. Syed Hussein says he's quite critical of... Um, Keir Starmer, uh, saying he doesn't have a very developed politics, um, but perhaps I'm being a bit harsh. Um, so, yeah, always, oh, so I say he loves the podcast and he will be getting back to work researching the French Revolution for his final year history dissertation. Well, you've got some drama in France to come, Syed, as well as the drama in British politics. Um, but I think there are probably parallels with the French Revolution. You need to sort of have a glass of wine during both, I suspect. Anyway, um, Keir Starr's politics. Um, I think he has got much more of a sense of what he would like to do than he so far has been able to convey. He, He, you know, in an era where... Johnson talks about levelling up and all these other concepts. Um, Starmer believes in an act 
active state in partnership with others, and including business. And he needs to sort of flesh that out. Um, and that, of course, is the art of leadership. So I think he is a bit more d developed. But the fact that you think that, obviously, Syed, is, is a, shows that the art of communication, the essence of being a leader of the opposition, is still one to be learned. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Simon Lockyer has an interesting thought. He, he first of all wonders about whether many of us have clocked uh, the new powers the police now have to prevent protesters blocking motorways and roads. Um, yeah, I think most people have actually, Simon. And obviously those who support the protests are alarmed. But I, I suspect voters on the whole might approve. I, you know, who knows? Let's see. But where I agree with you is on your second point. Simon writes, the gas and power supply issues. Is this another example of the government's lack of ability to influence the situation due to the way the power market is structured in the UK? It seems similar to the early COVID health response, pulling a few ineffective levers which have little effect on the crisis. Yeah, I agree, Simon. The, the energy market is bonkers. Oh, yeah, let's, let's encourage competition by getting loads of small companies in. They then bet on the energy price. They don't produce the energy. They, they bet on the price of gas. The gas of price soars. They go bust. And then there isn't competition in the energy market. But meanwhile, the government imposes a price cap, which, of course, uh, when Ed Miliband proposed it, it was seen as a sort of act of um, kind of Fidel Castro-type socialism. Um, is now broadly supported by conservative newspapers because Johnson and Theresa May put the case for it. But uh, it does lead to the most incoherent energy market. And... Uh, the levers to sort it out are very limited. Uh, Chris Park, I listened to your latest podcast whilst walking the Hadrian's Wall path. It's amazing, Chris. I want to walk that path. It sounds fantastic. Uh, what a great combination to listen to a podcast. No, no, this podcast while walking on the Hadrian's Wall. Anyway, uh, Chris says it served as a good reminder that Britain's destiny was always and will always remain inextricably part of Europe. Brexit can't trump geography. On that point, I differ with you on Labour's position re the EU. I'm a diehard Remainer, but it seems to me Johnson doesn't want to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol at all. He just wants to keep the Brexit culture war alive. Yeah, I think he does. Um, but then, isn't it better for Labour, this is Chris, to sidestep the emotive issue of Brexit? Um, in the long run, perhaps there will be a return to the single market and all the rest of it, but until then, Labour should sidestep it. I'm not sure that sidestepping is right, Chris, as you were walking on the Hadrian's Wall, um, reflecting on this option, because it is going to be an election issue. Uh, um, Boris Johnson has said already it's going to be an election issue. So Labour need to have won the arguments well in advance of an election on Brexit. And silence doesn't quite do it. Now, this is becoming a kind of Brexit special because Tom Bucknell writes, uh, Hi, Steve. Love the podcast. Thank you, Tom. 
What happens if Brexit turns out to be a massive problem at the next election instead of a strength for Boris Johnson? Then what does he fight the election on? Well, I'll tell you, Tom, uh, even if, well, already Brexit's unravelling, frankly, but he will portray it as a triumph. And if there are problems, he will portray it as Britain against Europe. And as I said in response to Chris during his walk on the Hadrian's Wall, Labour needs to get its act together well before then to challenge that. If they wait until the election, they'll find themselves buggered as they were in December 2019, where if you remember, you know, the whole Tory campaign was about Brexit and Labour tried to play Brexit down and it, it was never going to work. Anyway, uh, on to the, we're going to the Isle of Man next, Stuart Mills. Uh, Stuart says, really enjoyed the podcast and the stream from King's Place this week. Oh, thank you, Stuart. Uh, I always chuckle when you say, if it's all right with you before you start each week. I'm sure all your listeners yell back, of course it is, it's your podcast. Do you know, it's, yeah, if it's all right with you, Stuart, I'll explain why I say it. I forget that I'm sitting on my own in a room recording this. I think I'm with all of you and I need your permission constantly to do whatever comes next. Anyway, that's my explanation. Stuart's question. Keir Starmer doesn't seem to be cutting it. I can't help shouting, here comes Captain Hindsight every time he pops up on the news. What inspiration can he gain from previous opposition leaders who have been more effective? Well, Stuart, I think this Captain Hindsight thing, this is a Boris Johnson term, I think you are being unfair uh, because Keir Starmer quite often, like if you go back a year ago, he was calling for constraints in the build up to Christmas. Big risky thing to do. Christmas is popular on the whole uh, for reasons that God knows why, frankly. Um, anyway, but as you know, Boris Johnson was accusing, so, yeah, yeah, you want to abolish Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Starmer proved to be right, and uh, Johnson was wrong, and that wasn't hindsight. And then every now and again, Starmer abstained on uh, Johnson's proposed constraints, like the tier levels, which were a bit silly, like something out of Monty Python. And the reason he abstained was that the tiers were silly, but if he had voted against, there would have been no constraints because Labour plus the Tory rebels would have defeated any constraints. Now, that was an active act of opposition. But where I think you are right is in, uh, Stuart, is in this kind of, you've got to convey what you're doing and make it seem absolutely clear and thought through and, you know, so... Okay, some should have been on at 10 past 8 in the morning, the day he abstained. So, look, this is an act of agency. We're going to keep the constraints in place, but we don't like these ones. And but So explanation is needed. Um, I don't think it's all about hindsight. But anyway, from the Isle of Man, you might disagree. Uh, Denise Willier writes, uh, what about the Northern Ireland situation? We know that Dominic Raab hadn't read the Good Friday Agreement. And Boris Johnson is unfamiliar with the details. So I bet he is unfamiliar. I mean, uh, Dominic Cummings tweeted this week that Boris Johnson didn't know about really how the customs union worked until a crucial moment in the negotiations. And I bet he's right about that. 
How does Boris Johnson think he's going to square the circle, especially given there's not a cat in hell's chance that Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi and the House and Senate Democrats will allow the Good Friday Agreement to be breached? Well, this is where we have to analyse Frosty, Denise, and, and indeed Johnson, because Frosty is carrying out what Johnson wants. Is Frosty, get off Frosty, the biggest threat to the world since the great winter frost of 1750, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, is he going to risk alienating Biden and others? I don't know. I'm, I'm told he's absolutely sincere in his threat to trigger Article 16. But let's, uh, let's see. There's more on this because James Dowley takes a different view. By the way, James Dowley, when he last emailed, was in bed suffering quite badly from covid He's now recovered. So that's great, James. It's really great that you've recovered. But many of you might not dis might not agree with James in his full recovery mode. He says, I'll be interested to hear your views on the latest business with Lord Frosty Frost. Uh, for what it's worth, I think by playing hardball and being ultra aggressive uh, with his overt posturing, it's paid off because we are now starting to see concessions from the EU that were never considered under the disastrous May Robbins approach. James, I completely disagree. The May Robbins approach got a better Brexit deal than the Johnson-Frosty approach. It was a better deal. In retrospect, Labour MP should have voted for it. Um, because if they had, I mean, it's one of the great fascinating what-ifs, um, May would still be Prime Minister, the Tory party might still, but anyway, it, it just, as on its merits, it was a better deal. Um, and they did that without <coughs> wearing Union Jack socks and all the nonsense. James says, should we raise a glass to Frosty? From my conversations with uh, European uh, leaders or those close to it, it was in spite of Frosty that they made the concessions on the protocol. Indeed, they almost stopped making the concessions because they knew that parts of the UK would see it as a triumph for Frosty. It almost blocked the concessions. But even those concessions might not be enough because Frosty wants to go to war over the European Court of Justice, um, which is still an issue and not resolved. So watch this space, uh, James. Uh, I, I think I remember Frosty acted tough when he signed up to the protocol. It was still the same frosty, threatening things, you know, Britain will flourish, no deal, and all the rest of it. Um, it's still the same frosty who signed up to the deal that he now disowns. So you haven't converted me, James, even though you're back to full health. Uh, Dominique Jewell, our regular correspondent from France. How desperate would Boris Johnson be to avoid the re-emergence of Brexit at the next election? Might he just dispense with the services of Frosty, for example? Well, Dominica, I think he might dispense with the services of Frosty at some point, because Frosty will become a problem for him. Um, and he's easily sackable. He's wholly dependent on Johnson's patronage. He's not elected. He has no constituency in the Conservative Party. Um, so he could go. But I still think Johnson will make Brexit an election theme, because that's what election winners do. They win one election and fight the next one with almost the same messages, even though the world has completely changed. Uh, still on Brexit, Simon Cole. I've heard you say on several occasions that Keir Starmer is missing an open goal on Brexit. 
But is it not the case that by criticising Brexit, he would be further alienating himself from a large potential of potential Labour voters who still support Brexit? Um, yeah, well, that is the um, theory. And the problem is this, though, Simon, that silence just gives a clear field to those who are currently pioneering a Brexit that is causing all kinds of problems. It, to be honest, problems deeper than I thought would be the case. Um, now, I can see why you do that. But what about in an election? where Johnson's going to claim that Starmer is a closet remainer and will want to reconfigure Brexit. And Starmer has said he will address a botched Brexit, as he calls it. Well, how? He needs to address that well before an election and start trying to win an argument about it. And I don't think it's impossible because the consequences of Frosty and Johnson's Brexit are pretty dire. David Bentley writes, I'm a regular listener to the podcast based near Leuven in Belgium. The last two editions have been the background to painting the shutters on the outside of our house ready for winter. Well, David, that is kind of almost Shakespearean, that image of preparing for winter, the darkness to come whilst listening to the podcast with the shutters ready to shut down and protect you from the cold of... I'm, I'm becoming Shakespearean myself, David. Uh, the Prime Minister's was a highlight of my summer reading. Oh, great. And the Prime Minister's we never had is top of my Christmas list. So I can imagine you reading it with the shutters shut, the fire raging in Leverne in Belgium. Amazing. Now, David's kind of with me on proportional representation. It seems to me, David writes, that most advocates of PR in the UK are from the progressive side of politics and simply see the consistent 55% plus anti-Tory vote and somehow think that PR would give some sort of fair result. But I'm not convinced. Um, and he points out, under PR, parties will inevitably fragment Elections will be inconclusive and governments will emerge from complex negotiations after the election. In Belgium, he writes, we have at least nine parties who would always think they had a chance of being present in any government. It takes months. Sometimes I think it takes more than months, doesn't it, David? Yeah, I agree with you. So those of you who are in favour, counter David's view. Uh, Venetia Kane, uh, Thatcher, it is said, would not have had a second term without the Falklands. Johnson has made it clear that he'll be fighting the next election on Brexit. Yeah, you've clocked that, Venetia. I've clocked this as well. He said it in a Times interview. Do you think he's trying to provoke a trade war with the EU in order to create his own Falklands? By the way, uh, Venetia, the Falklands, though important to Margaret Thatcher, she would have won in 1983 without the Falklands. The most important thing that happened uh, was the split in the Labour Party in 1981, the formal schism. After that, she clocked. There was no way Labour could win with that split vote. And that's what led her to uh, victory in 83. But the Falklands helped. I don't know whether he'll risk a trade war because there will be so many downsides for voters in the UK. Although the more downsides there are, voters, the more the voters seem to back Boris Johnson. 
um, such as the surreal world we're living in at the moment. But I have absolutely no doubt he's going to contrive some sense of battle with Europe um, and that only by voting for him and not this the Islington Remainer, you know, even though actually it was Johnson who lived in Islington, not Starmer. Um, yeah, he's going to try and do that. But trade war, quite risky, because there'll be downsides for British voters, huge, huge downsides. Um, Den Cartledge, great gig last night. Oh, thank you, Den. You must be writing the day after the King's Place gig. Had to slum it and watch on my phone, but it was still enjoyable over a bottle or two of quality Spanish beer. Yeah, you need a bit of alcohol with rock and roll politics, uh, whether you're live at King's Place or the Witham Art Centre on November the 6th um, or watching the stream. Uh, last night's discussion about the Conservative poly, you know what I was telling you about at the beginning of the podcast, and whether Keir Starmer could dent it. Maybe think about a recent online story about whether some Labour MPs were going to defect to the Tory party. He wonders whether this was true. They could be seduced by levelling up projects and do a reg prentice if Keir Starmer doesn't make an impact soon. Reg Prentice, uh, Den says, you're way too young to remember him. Yeah, you're right, Den, I'm way too young. But you know what? I do remember. Reg Prentice uh, was a Labour cabinet minister, actually, who defected to the Tories in the uh, uh, 70s. Dramatic defection. I, 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 my first job in journalism was at Radio Northampton. And Reg Prentice was the Conservative MP for Daventry. And I was hooked on politics. I did a half-hour interview with him. It's called The Man Who Changed Sides. And it was really interesting. The, the, getting into the mind of defectors is fascinating. I don't know of any thinking about it, Dan. Um, you know, we're permanently surprised, so maybe there will be. But I will be surprised if there are defections. Uh, Reverend Paul Arbuthnot writes from the Diocese of Cork, Cloyne and Ross. Um, <clears throat> thank you for another superb King's Play show. Well, thank you so much for watching. Another thing uh, Paul is watching is the Labour Revolution, the new Labour Revolution, Blair and Brown, which I've talked about. I couldn't help but think that their working relationship was not unlike that of Brian Clough and Peter Taylor in their prime. Clough, the charismatic shop window, and Taylor, the powerhouse backroom goods. Alas, Blair and Brown drifted apart just like Clough and Taylor eventually did. Do you think there's anything in this comparison? Yeah, it's really got me thinking. I've always been fascinated by <coughs> Clough and Taylor and wanted to know them. I, I, I did know well, do know well, Blair and Brown and was one of the, I think, few kind of journalists who both sides spoke to in the Blair and Brown dispute. And um, for those of you who don't follow football, Clough and Taylor were the most successful duo in British football management, but they fell out and Clough was this charis charismatic, enigmatic manager and Taylor was the figure behind the scenes, but Clough couldn't do without him. Uh, and they fell out badly. Um, and yet Taylor couldn't lead on his own. He tried it. And uh, I think it's brilliant, Paul as a parallel and I'm going to explore a bit more I, I, will we ever get to the essence of Clough and Taylor I mean what they did was phenomenal but so was what Blair and Brown did in terms of 
New Labour, although the context for New Labour. Remember 1994, uh, the Tories were already miles behind in the polls. Uh, the Maastricht Treaty was tearing them apart. Um, the context was pretty good for them. The context for Clough and Taylor was pretty tough. They took over Nottingham Forest in what was then the first division, having won with Derby County. And then they, no, it was the second division, moved to the first division, as was, and won it and won the European Cup. I mean, they were amazing and complicated. Uh, thank you. Uh, Paul Francie writes, I look forward to your podcast every week and usually listen at home on a Monday evening here in Saigon, Vietnam along with my two cats, White Heat and Prudence with a Purpose. See the power of slogans, um, uh, White Heat, yeah. The White Heat of the Technological Revolution. I know that's not the full name of your cat, Paul. And Prudence with a Purpose, which incidentally is a brilliant slogan. Think about it a bit more. Um, a lot of the sort of Middle England voters and the Middle England newspapers only noticed the prudence in Gordon Brown's budgets, but the purpose was there and it was a left of centre purpose, I think. I have a question about the consequences of this government's emphasis on a high wage economy. This seems to have been framed in the context of employers in the private sector, but what of the public sector? Yeah, good point. If there are big pay rises in the private sector, there will be demands for big pay rises in the public sector. And we keep on hearing from Rishi Sunak that the money is incredibly tight. Also, what effect does this have on trade unions? I can tell you, Paul, as someone who studied the 70s, it empowers them. And um, the moment you have a prime minister saying, you know, this is, a, this is all planned, the staff shortages... Uh, because it will lead to higher wages. You, you see those bids going in. Thank you, Paul. Sam Dawkins. Uh, watching Ma the other day, it occurred to me how often Labour politicians are often asked the question of how they would deal with whatever crisis we happen to be in the middle of. Should the interviewees have a ready-prepared, detailed answer to this? Often the response seems vague or even, well, we're not in the government. We're not in government. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good point. You have to uh, have an answer to that which appears absolutely clear and thought through, even if, frankly, it's not entirely. Um, uh, he says, I can't recall how New Labour or earlier Labour or Conservative oppositions dealt with these questions. New Labour dealt with them brilliantly. As I said, there are flaws in the analysis of this New Labour series, but and, and and some of the flaws is it doesn't actually expose the weakness of some of the kind of almost technocratic approach to politics with the elevation of that vague term new. But in the build up to 97, they, Blair, Brown and others who were basically told the message via Blair and Brown, um, had an appearance of absolute clarity about what they would do and why. Partly they were candid. Um, they did, you know, if they were asked about their precise tax plans, they would say, look, I'm sorry to disappoint you, not yet. You'll get them, but not yet. Um, but, you know, Brown did that clever dividing line. That it's no longer about high versus low taxation. It's fair versus unfair taxation. 
Keir Starmer has sort of lifted that, but he's got to be careful about lifting things from the mid-1990s. This is different. Politics never repeats itself. Um, but then they did have precise policies to announce as well. They were very incremental and tiny. Do you remember, you know, look, you know, education, education, education. Therefore, we will increase class sizes for seven-year-olds by, so there will be three more people and, you, you know, whatever, reduce class sizes. It was very kind of modest, but that was part of the pitch, symbolic changes, but changes that don't cost very much. So you, but it was part of being clearly thought through in that symphonic way, and uh, oppositions win on that basis. Uh, so it's a good question. Uh, Sam also says, any chance of a show in Newbury, the Corn Exchange or the Arlington Centre or somewhere in the Thames Valley, Reading, Basingstoke? Sam, let us know of the venues and uh, quite possibly I'm very keen to do more gigs out of London. So let me end with where I began by saying, hopefully see some of you at um, in County Durham at the Barnard Castle Witham Arts Centre, um, uh, where it was November the 6th and it will be on their website and in the blurb for this podcast. So we'll have a great night there, but do let me know the details and uh, maybe we can have a rock and roll politics evening at the Corn Exchange. Um, the next one at King's Place is the rock and roll politics Christmas special on December the 9th. Tickets are on sale at the King's Place website. Um, and the day before on December the 8th, I'm at the Great Rope Tackle Art Centre uh, in Shoreham for a rock and roll politics Christmas special. But the next one, November the 6th, the Witham Art Centre, right next to Dominic Cummings' Specsavers in Barnard Castle. Thank you so much for listening. Let's all get together next week and try and make sense of it all. Keep the questions coming. Oh yeah, let me give you the email for new listeners and we're getting new listeners all the time. Um, I always forget the email address. I've got to find it each, you know, I have to look it up each time. It's Steve Rick. 14 at iCloud.com. SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. Get your points over, your questions for next week. For those of you jogging at the moment, that information was brought to you at about 54 minutes in the podcast. So we've been going quite some time together. Have a great week. See you soon. And thanks for living. Thanks for living. You're all living. Thanks for listening. Bye.